Good morning. Welcome to you all. I shouldn't complain. And uh, we're very glad to uh, have you this morning with us. Uh, Andrew will join us. He told me that he might be a little bit late, um, but uh, he will be joining us. But I can tell you that we have a very distinguished panel to respond to what we heard last night. And what we heard last night was a hell of a lot. Uh, I would not uh, like to be the person in the position that we are in of summarizing what happened last night. But it was one of the most fascinating Theodore White uh, combination nine prize uh, evenings that I have experienced, certainly. I want to uh, begin by introducing our panel briefly, and then we will, uh, we will, we will start. The, the, the frame for this gathering is that the point of departure is what happened last night, but it's certainly not limited to that, and we will be roaming uh, where, where interest in conversation takes us, and we will then uh, open the floor to all of you to be able to uh, take part in the conversation. Any of you who are using computers, you do not need a password to get online. It's automatic, so you should not have any, any difficulty. Um, okay, if, if I may, let me begin. Um, uh, on the right is Ted Devine, who is an IOP fellow uh, here at the Kennedy School. He has, since 1993, been a media consultant. The thing that makes him so particularly interesting is that he has not only done it in the United States, but he has had extensive experience abroad as well. And he's been doing strategic uh, advice for national campaigns in Europe, in the Middle East, and elsewhere. Um, next to him is Jill Lepore, uh, the David Woods Kemper Professor of American History at uh, Harvard and uh, the chair of Harvard's History and Literature Program. She is a contributing writer to uh, The New Yorker. Her 2010 book, The Whites of Their Eyes, The Tea Party's Revolution and the Battle Over American History, put her in the, in the – she found the sweet spot between American history and absolutely contemporary events, I think. <laughs> Uh, to my right, uh, your left, is, of course, Thomas Frank, who was uh, uh, the Nyan Prize winner last night and who had uh, s provocative things to say and who I promised I would give the first shot at responding to the same question I asked Andrew last night about where he sees the two of them overlapping and where he sees them differing. I very much look forward to hearing your thought on that. Um, Next to him is uh, Nia, uh, her byline is, is Nia Malika Henderson. She prefers just Nia. Uh, she'll be Nia this morning. She is a national political reporter for the Washington Post and covers the White House, graduate of Duke and Yale, and uh, she wrote about education and race and the White House for Politico before joining the Washington Post. And finally, our Shorenstein fellow on the board, uh, Mark McKinnon. Mark is a man who has done, you know, he, in, in an odd way, he reminds me a little bit of, uh, of Andrew. He is a, someone who, uh, who follows his, uh, his conscience and his political ideology, which is not easy to, to characterize. He is a conservative. Uh, he has worked for George W. Bush, uh, but he declined to work for uh, John McCain, even though he had been in John McCain's campaign because he declined to work against Barack Obama the last time around. 
The thing that he is especially focused on now, however, is a, an effort, not an effort, a, a, basically a fact, of a nomination of a third-party candidate, <clears throat> or a third candidate anyway, that would be on the ballot in all 50 states. Uh, and it is something that makes some people skeptical and make some people enthralled. But uh, he comes at this particular election season from a different perspective than perhaps any of the rest of the people on this panel. So with that, uh, we will, when Andrew comes, uh, of course, he will, he will join us, and I hope that he will be coming forth you know, soon. But let me then, if I can, first invite you, Thomas, to talk about, just briefly, about what your answer to that question is about where you and Andrew overlap and differ and how you see that. Wait. And if you would speak into the mic, we're, we are recording. <coughs> Works. <laughs> so I, I, I sort of answered it last night if you were unfortunate enough to, you know, to hear my sort of you know, meandering comments. Uh, what did I, I? I was struck by uh, by, by something that <clears throat> that Andrew said uh, in his you know that he refers to himself as a conservative even though he uh, he wants nothing to do with the Republican Party um, and he thinks that it's gone in this uh, in this very radical direction and I remember um, back in the uh, what early two thousands I was writing what's the matter with Kansas and uh, someone said. You know, said to me, "Why do you refer to them as conservatives? They're, they're not. You know, they're they're radicals. They even use this term to describe themselves. Uh, who is the? Uh, who am I thinking of? Not Howard Phillips, but another one of the the, the re, uh, Paul Weirich, who said who referred said, you know, we aren't conservatives. We are radicals trying to overturn the existing order. Uh, you know, a conservative. The, I, I also liked the 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 sort of uh, the, the way we were talking about Dwight Dwight D Eisenhower last night. A conservative accepts." That things like social security are here to stay, you know that the that the uh, the New Deal is a is a you know that is it, it, it in fact has happened. It's not going to be reversed. Uh, but the but the, the 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 people that I describe are actually determined to uh, or that I write about all the time are determined to to overturn these things. And I uh, I to go further than that, I also sometimes think that i that I have a, a you know a conservative temperament right and this sounds very strange if you've if you've if you've read what i've written because i'm always regarded i'm the guy that's outside the consensus right i'm way off to the left i'm you know i'm to, my views are totally unacceptable, but at the end of the day you know when I, when I was writing the book about Kansas, for example, you know, I drive around in those towns. I, I love that place. I love those people. I don't want their world to be destroyed. And when you, you, you wonder, you know, when I'm describing that sort of landscape of desolation and, you know, and, and, uh, and futility and all the sort of T.S. Eliot kind of things uh, out there in the Midwest, and whether it's Kansas or whether it's the south side of Chicago or whether it's, you know, Cleveland or uh, all over America, there are places like that today. You, you don't uh, you want you ask yourself what what did this to these people? What are the forces that did these to these to these people? And it's not government. The answer is the market. You know this this sort of you know golden god that we have built for ourselves and that we bow down and worship, and you know whose every dictate we we obey, and you know who we've convinced ourselves is all seeing and all powerful and all wise, but that continues to do these dreadful things to people. Um, and to cities, and so 
that's where my, uh, you know, my economic views come from, is from a, I don't want to say, uh, I, I don't really like the word conservative anymore, but it, for, for a concern for these people and for their way of life, you know, not out of some, you know, determination to, to, to you know, to, to smash America or some crazy thing like that. Well, pardon me if I'm, you know, if I'm imagining something, but it seems to me that you and Andrew actually view things not exactly the same, but very similarly in coming at it, you come at it from a sort of humanistic kind of perspective. I know his is informed by his Catholicism, but but that his his definition of a conservative is Barack Obama, as you heard him say last night. And when he calls himself a conservative, <laughs> he means that he's a Barack Obama conservative. Uh-huh. Hmm. Well, uh, I was a big fan of Obama. He was my state senator when I lived in Chicago. And like everybody else in Hyde Park, I thought he was, he was a, a great man. I, thought, uh, you know, I, was, uh, I was very happy to vote for him. For, I mean, I couldn't believe that my state senator was running for president <laughs> you know, and that he won it was a, an extraordinary thing. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I was very happy to vote for him. But he's, you know... Uh, you part th- company with Andrew on Obama. I well, no, no, no. I, I've, I, I'm one of... When, when Andrew was talking about people who are disillusioned with Obama, and, and uh, I'm one of those people. I've, uh, I, I've been very disappointed by... I mean, it'll, it'll, I'm sure it'll look different 20 years from now. We'll look back at the Obama years and think it was a, you know, a golden age or something like that. But... Um, but I am, uh, you know, he came into office with, uh, in 2008 with such high expectations and, so, you know, such, you know, people expected so much of him that it's almost impossible for him to have been, you know, to, to, live, up, to, to live up to that. But on the other hand, he also could have done whatever he wanted in 2008. He had a, a, he had a, a huge majority in both houses of Congress. The global economy was prostrate. Uh, uh, he, he could have done whatever he wanted, and instead he chose he chose to uh, you know continue the Bush administration's course on the essential economic matters, and I think that was a, a, a terrible mistake. Well, let me uh, broaden this conversation. I'd like to call on Jill first to respond to what she heard last night. Sure. Thanks. Thanks very much. I feel a little odd um, <laughs> speaking to the empty chair. <laughs> 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 I come from the college, and we don't chat over in the yard. We, we only read. So, um, so, so I read something up. But it really is a really kind of square response to the remarks last night, so I, I feel a little awkward, but um, we can conjure Andrew here. Fortunately, it's on paper, and you can hand it to him. Oh, I can hand it to them. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to read for a moment, and you can relax. Um, I was quite struck, as I think we all probably were, um, with my sense of gratitude for the judgment and discernment and gravity of, and eloquence of the remarks that we heard last night. Um, I want to take issue largely with this definition of conservatism um, because I, I, I found that to be imprecise. And I think we could all benefit from uh, interrogating that a little bit further. I do not recognize the Republican Party as a conservative force in society, Mr. Sullivan said in framing his remarks. I agree. I think many of us probably agree with that statement. I wonder, though, if we ought not to inquire whether Mr. Sullivan's definition of conservatism is, isn't rather too capacious to carry the meaning that he places upon it. So to consider very briefly three elements of his definition, which I jotted down as I was uh, following his speech. Conservatism concerns the tragedy of the human condition, Mr. Sullivan said. 
Is that not true of all systems of belief? Does that qualify in any, in any respect as a definition? Conservatives believe that social science is an oxymoron, said. So do most academics, I know. Conservatism, Mr. Sullivan tells us, involves doubt about all systems of knowledge. Is that conservatism or is that skepticism? Mm -hmm. In American political culture today, the greatest act of political courage is moderation. Mr. Sullivan was introduced to us as fearlessly opinionated, as I think uh, Thomas Frank was as well. And neither of these people are answerable to their introductions, um, which were gracious and generous, of course. But I, I find fearless opinion, opinion, <laughs> opinionability a sort of curious commendation in this age. Surely fearlessness is to be admired, but is being opinionated in itself worthy of admiration? We live in an era of excess, a preposterous, greedy, exuberant excess of opinion. Most of that opinion is unsupported by evidence or argument. A great deal of it is hostile and inflammatory, deliberately so, in part because American politics has been so entirely unhinged by a set of morally troubling and cynically manipulated ideas about the bodies of women and the lives of children. Vicious, Mr. Sullivan says, describing our political rhetoric, and I agree. I find much of it also to be grotesque. But I'm also constantly taken aback, especially given how much of our politics hinges on what happens inside of women's bodies, by how entirely absent women are for most political debate in the United States. In 2010, 95% of all books about American politics published in this country were written by men, as were nearly 90% of the reviews of those books. That is a very narrow conversation. Nationally, more than 80% of all op-eds published in American newspapers are written by men. And last night, of course, of all the dozens of people who lined up to ask questions, excellent, thoughtful questions, only one woman stood up in that room, and yet none of us questioned that. This gets me to the last question I would like to raise. As a Catholic, I found myself quite moved by Mr. Sullivan's remarks about how fundamentalism has replaced faith. I wondered, though, whether there, not ought, whether there ought not to be a place in our shared set of concerns about the world in which we live for worry, for even alarm, about the replacement of knowledge with opinion. In answer to a question from the audience and made with the intention of encouraging a young, earnest journalist, Mr. Sullivan celebrated what he called a revival of citizen journalism. The web is not zero-sum, he said. But I tally in the list of losses in the transition from the age of print to the digital age, these things. No one reports on the State House anymore, as Tom's Frank remarked. Long-form investigative journalism is nearly dead. If women as political writers are nearly absent from the world of books and newspapers, they're all but silent in the political blogosphere. Metrics are hard to come by, but many of you will have remembered the report that more than 85% of contributors to Wikipedia are men. Women do not post. And finally, we've also witnessed in the span of a dozen years the death of the editor, a cultural role whose invention was one of the greatest accomplishments of the Renaissance and is responsible for much of what has made liberal democracy and the freedoms we enjoy possible. Only conservatism can rescue our society and our world, Mr. Sullivan argued. I reason differently, and I place my faith elsewhere. Thank you, Jill, for that <clears throat> very thoughtful response. Uh, Nia, let me ask you to respond, not only to or give your thoughts about last <laughs> night, but uh, to what you just heard uh, from Jill. 
as as a woman in a journalistic, uh, you know, institution? Um, thanks. Wow. I, I wish I had something typed out. I do not. Uh, I didn't go to Harvard, and I don't hang around here. Uh, but uh, I did notice. I will. I will say, uh, Jill, as I sat in in the audience uh, last night, I did notice uh, the lack of diversity in terms of. Uh, race and, and, and gender, and, and certainly notice that all the time as I report uh, on the White House and on the, on the campaign when I'm at a Tea Party rally, I especially notice it. Um, and, it, you know, it obviously does lead to a, a different sort of conversation, the fact that they're mainly uh, white men who are in this conversation. And, you know, I mean, I think for me personally, I'm often asked, you know, what does it mean to be a, a black woman uh, covering these sorts of things? And I'm always struck by the fact that no one ever asks a white man what it's like to uh, cover, cover these sorts of things, as, as if my race and, and gender, um, as if white men don't have race and gender. Um, in terms of what uh, Andrew said last night, this whole idea of conservatism in crisis, I certainly see it every day in terms of covering this campaign, covering this election, uh, this cast of characters that has cropped up uh, as presidential candidates uh, as they struggle with the really some of the bedrock's idea, bedrock ideas of conservatism, this idea of being hawkish. You see Ron Paul down in South Carolina getting loud cheers when he's talking about an isolationist approach to America's foreign policy. You see Herman Cain, who doesn't seem to know a lot about foreign policy, doing so well in, in the polls. Uh, and uh, Mitt Romney is holding fast at, you know, 23 percent. I don't know if that's a floor or a ceiling, uh, but who looks like he is the inevitable choice in this uh, campaign and could, in fact, if he does win, it, you know, some people predict it would be in many ways the end of the Tea Party because he is such um, a moderate guy. Um, so I, you know, I, I thought it was a, a fascinating talk, very um, insightful. I don't think that most people would agree that Barack Obama is a conservative. Uh, I think some liberals might, uh, you know, ag agree with that and are certainly upset with the way he has handled uh, many, uh, the approach to the debt ceiling, approach to Bush tax cuts. Um, but um, that, that's all. Okay. Thank you. Um, Mark, what did you hear last night? Uh, well, first of all, let me say that uh, uh, echo what Jill said, which was last night uh, between Thomas and Andrew, a, a lot of gravity, judgment, and eloquence. And uh, I turned to my wife, Annie, afterwards, and, and she, she, was, she said, wow, what a, what a profound evening. And uh, she said, you're doing a panel with those guys tomorrow, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, don't talk much. <laughs> 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 so I'm going to follow that instruction. <laughs> uh, but what I uh, uh, first thing that I, I, I uh, of course uh, I had great sympathy for Andrew in the sense that I often feel pretty lonely as a Republican, and uh, it was nice to have some company uh, out there with Andrew because we share a lot of the same philosophy and thoughts, and and so I <laughs> I have had like a lot of people in my life a political sort of arc that I've run. I started off as an anarchist trying to abolish student government at the University of Texas, and then worked for years as a Democrat and then evolved. And there were only two parties in Texas at the time. There was, you were either a Democrat or a conservative Democrat, and the Republican Party grew. And as I grew and became more conservative, I became a Republican. And worked for George W. Bush. I was attracted initially by the whole idea of compassionate conservatism and, uh, and, and his governorship at the time. And 
uh, when it worked in a very bipartisan fashion. Um, but it's, uh, and so I have worked uh, through a number of means in, in writing and, and activism and NGOs trying to, uh, trying to encourage the Republican Party to enforce what I think ideals that have been long abandoned uh, that Andrew touched on a lot of last night. And uh, it's, it's discouraging. I mean, it's, it's hard and it's, it's, it's difficult to see where I think the, the party is headed and where the primaries have, have taken us and the, 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 the thin quality of the field of the candidates. And I wish a lot of other people had run. Um, so, uh, and, I, and by the way, I think uh, uh, that, that our system is largely broken which creates a lot of frustration, but uh, I'm not giving up, and I'm continuing to try and find ways to, to kick the shins of the system. And uh, and so I'm, I'm now coming back to my anarchist phase, <laughs> making it full 360, and, uh, and and very interested in this Americans elect idea, which is an alternative nominating process, which I think more than anything just reimagines democracy. And uh, <coughs> it, the interesting thing, it, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but the thing that I do know is, is it, it's going to happen. There's going to be this. And when the smoke clears from the Republican primaries, everybody's going to look around. They're going to go, oh, Romney and Obama yawned. And, uh, and they'll say, isn't there something else? And the answer is going to be yes. There's going to be this very... Mark, explain just you know, yeah, in shorthand. Okay. I, yeah. The, the shorthand on this is that um, uh, there's an organization called Americans Elect, which is taking a very innovative and unique approach to uh, an alternative nominating process in the sense that they said... We don't have a candidate, but the, the impediment to any kind of alternative candidacy has always been ballot access and money, and money is a feature of the first. You have to have money to get on the ballot because the parties have made it impossibly difficult and expensive to get on the ballot. So uh, these folks sort of sat down and said, well, if we could you know, reimagine democracy, how would we do it? Uh, you know, we're trying to encourage good people to address the profound challenges that we have, and good people aren't stepping up because of the nature of the primaries and the nature of the political, political process. How do we do it differently? Well, we'd eliminate the primaries. We'd use technology. Uh, we'd create a unity ticket uh, with, so that you have a Republican and a Democrat or Democrat and Republican as a unity ticket to, to address the hyper-partisanship, which most Americans are really hungry for. Um, and you'd have it all, all, all done. All you have to do to be a delegate is sign up on the Internet, and all you have to do to vote is to be a delegate, and you can nominate anybody you want to. And it, it, they, it, 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 you go to americanselect.org, and you can, there's a lot of detail about this. But they put a lot of thought into it. And so, of course, there's all the typical questions that I hear, which is, oh, it can't happen. It's never happened before. You know, here's why. Here's the challenges. And I say, yeah, I get it. I hear that. That's, you know, same thing I heard where we're never going to elect an African-American president just because it hasn't happened before doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And uh, so uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting, innovative idea at a time when people are very unhappy with the status quo. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen uh, but I'll tell you this, that and people's, the, the logical question is who's going to run. I don't know the answer to that yet, but I'm quite certain that when you eliminate having to go through the primaries and you don't have to spend millions of dollars to get on the ballot, you can do it for free. It's, it's already done for you. I assure you there's some interesting people in this country that are either in office, have been in office before, or in the private sector, they're going to step up and, 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 uh, and go through this American Select process. Tom, let me ask you. You... When you hear this, how do you think 
this will play in Kansas. One, in terms of the process of nominating, and then let's assume for the moment that there is a credible candidate that is that emerges from Americans elect. How will your Kansas that you you have described react to that? Uh, well, uh, that's it's uh, it's funny that you turned to me into Kansas because Kansas was uh, what you know. Kansas is 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 known for its uh, dalliance, its flirtation with third party movements in the 19th century, and I wonder, Mark, if you guys have have you mentioned two big obstacles to third parties. You said the the, the how much it costs to get on the ballot, and what was the other one you said? Money, money. Yeah, uh, money. Well, well, just getting on the ballot and then the money. That right, but there's a, there's another one that you that you need to consider, and that is that they after populism, the last great third party movement, and populism for those of you who don't know is this. It was third-party movement all over the Midwest and the South, and it actually managed to elect uh, people from you know local officials to U.S. senators. They you know they ran people for president. They didn't do as well at the at that level, but uh, it looked scary. They were growing and growing and growing, and um, populism sort of petered out after the uh, after 1896. And after it did, just about every state where it had been strong passed laws to make their strategies illegal. Uh, specifically, what they used to do is called fusion. So uh, in Kansas, Kansas has always been pretty much a one-party state where the one party is the Republicans. And um, the populists would, uh, uh, they would fuse with the Democrats, who were, who were a tiny little party. And so they would, they would nominate somebody, the Democrats would nominate the same guy. And then they would, uh, uh, the person would, 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 would win that way. They'd be listed on the ballot twice, both as a populist and as a Democrat. And in the South, where the Democrats were the, were the traditional party, the populists fused with the Republicans. Uh, and this was very effective, and it's now illegal all over America. And you, I mean, the thing is, if you were to uh, to change those laws, and the two parties won't let you, of course, but if you were to change, I mean, there's a reason we haven't had third party movements again. In the 19th century, there was just one after another after another and uh, culminating in populism. But one of the reasons is because their, their basic technique is against the law. Uh, and it would, be, it would be really interesting if you were able to overturn those laws all over America. It would, hell, it would not be interesting. It would be fantastic. It would be, you know, it would be uh, American springtime or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> you know, if we could actually have, you know, a, a range of, of candidates with all sorts of different views, it would be fantastic. So go get them. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Ted, what's your uh, take on last night? And also, if you would, what is your take on uh, on the idea of a Americans elect? Great, thank you. Um, well, I wrote down my thoughts like Jill, not as eloquent, I'm afraid, but uh, nevertheless, I put some thought into it. First, let me say that I agreed. I wish Andrew were here so I could he could hear how much I agree with what he had to say last night. I don't know if that makes me a conservative. Uh, I'm not, uh, at least as I understand what a conservative is. First, I agree the debt crisis is one of the great challenges that we have to confront today, and I agree with what Andrew said, that in order to confront it, both sides have to take a hit. I think that's the only answer. Um, I agree that the potential conflict between Iran and Israel over Iran's nuclear program uh, is a huge threat to security, not just in the Middle East and the world, although I don't know if I agree with uh, what he said about mutually assured destruction being something that, in fact, could maintain security there. I think it's a very different place and a different age today. Um, I agree that, as Andrew said last night, we cannot impose democracy on a country or a culture, that it has to come from within and not be imposed from without. Um, 
I agree uh, with many of the remarks that he ma made last night about President Obama, that he has the right temperament, the right judgment, and that it's vital that he be reelected. And I certainly support that. And I also agree uh, with what he said last night, that President Obama has faced what he called a repulsive, radical, <laughs> and obstructionist opposition. I think that's absolutely dead on. Uh, I don't know if I agree with his assertion, that he, and maybe this is why I'm not a conservative and I am who I am. I don't know if I agree with his assertion that the Supreme Court denied the ability of the country to make decisions uh, on their own on a deep moral issue when the, when the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade. Um, I think the Supreme Court was correct when they decided that a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion. And I think the formula articulated in that decision, I remember reading it many years ago as a young law student, I thought was uh, the right balance, uh, uh, the approach to, uh, to a trimester formula was the right balance to a very difficult uh, problem. And, uh, and I agree uh, with what Andrew has said, that the time has come to end discrimination against people in this country on the basis of their sexual orientation when it comes to the issue of marriage. And I, for one, would be very happy if the Supreme Court decided that the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution should apply in that instance as well. Um, you know, I think it's perfectly appropriate, and maybe that kind of judicial activism is why, you know, I'm not a conservative, I'm a liberal. Uh, and finally, uh, I have to say that I agree with Andrew uh, that uh, we as a nation are too devoted to affluence and materialism. Uh, and uh, I can tell you, and I think I heard this from Jill, uh, you know, as a practicing Roman Catholic myself, you know, I share many of his sentiments uh, about my church uh, and its profound problems. Um, so I agree with mu much of what he and also what Thomas said uh, last night. Uh, I very much enjoyed their comments and uh, their insights and, and agree with many of their conclusions. And as to third party and uh, Americans elect, I will tell you that I have never seen a time in the 31 years that I've worked on political campaigns that America is more ready to move out of a two-party system. Uh, the dissatisfaction that is expressed with the direction of the country, the profound dissatisfaction. I think I counted something like 35 national polls since the middle of summer where the wrong track is net 50 to 70 points higher than the right track. Okay, it is unbelievable. I see this when I go to Bolivia and Colombia and Honduras and third world countries where people live in abject and dire poverty. I can, you can understand why they feel their country's going in the wrong direction. But to see it in the United States of America, uh, I think it presents a tremendous opening. And last year, we're here in New England, I worked on two campaigns for governor, one in Rhode Island for Link Chafee, who I worked against in 2006 when he was Republican, but worked for when he became an independent when he was elected governor. And the other very remarkable campaign for Elliot Cutler, who was unknown, never ran for office, and came within a couple of thousand votes being elected governor of Maine, showed me that there is a tremendous opening for candidates outside the structure of the two-party system to step forward. Link Chafee announced for governor by saying he was going to raise taxes. Okay. Elliot Cutler, you know, uh, made it clear to everybody that there were no easy solutions to problems, but he was willing to take them on. That really cut through. In a three-way race, you can win with 35, 36, 37% of the vote. So I think there is a real opening, and I think we may see it. We are very fortunate to have E.J. Dion with us this morning. E.J. is a member of the Shorenstein Center's uh, advisory board. And I would also, you know, it, it, to have him at this table is a great pleasure and honor. And, uh, E.J., I'd like to get your response to what you've heard. 
Thank you. Although I feel like after Jill's wonderful presentation, I'm just adding to the problem. I'm a guy. I write books and op-eds. I'm just sort of, <laughs> and I'm speaking up. I just want to say first on Jill, it's a real honor to be with you. Uh, yeah, everybody should read the whites of their eyes. But if you read nothing else in that book, you should go to the end where Jill talks about the problems with originalism and points out that in the revolutionary era at the time the Constitution was written, where she couldn't vote. She probably wouldn't have a public voice. She wouldn't be writing books. And also she'd be wearing some kind of clothing that is wonderfully described. <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, and it's a beautiful paragraph that I think is uh, the best skewering of originalism I've ever read. So it's a real honor to be here. Um, and I don't want to – I'll, I'll skip Americans elect Mark. I knows I have some differences with that, but some that's for another day. I was thinking that the theme of um, – one other quick thing. Um, it's great to be here with Andrew and Tom. And I told Tom that many, many years from now, when he writes his memoirs, they should be called Outside the Consensus. It would be a great... I'd love to read them. Um, I think the theme might be described by Bill Clinton. Uh, and the theme is, it depends on what the meaning of the word conservative is. Um, and I was grateful for Andrew's talk because... I actually think that one of the deepest flaws in our current politics is the absence of certain kinds of conservatism, uh, and that I think there are only two dominant forms of conservatism right now that have driven out all the others. The dominant forms are a kind of radical individualism uh, that goes back to the Gilded Age. It's rooted in the thinking of Hayek. I was happy that uh, Andrew mentioned that his hero, Michael Oakeshott, had, was critical of Hayek, and it's a radical individualism that I think is very much uh, is unusual in the American tradition. It really may define the 35 years of the Gilded Age, but it doesn't define 235 years of our history. And then the other kind is a very particular kind of religious conservatism rooted in a very particular kind of evangelical uh, Protestantism. There is a kind of Catholic conspiracy uh, going on here. Um, I wish our friend Richard Parker, I has Richard here today. Um, but, but it's a very particular kind of evangelicalism because as Tom has written, um, evangelicals were actually at the forefront of progressivism. William Jennings Bryan was a deeply progressive figure and a lot of the opposition to Darwinism was an opposition to social Darwinism, uh, which was an attempt to say survival of the fittest is the best way to do public policy, which the country decided after a while was a disastrous way to do it. What we're missing are a whole variety of conservatisms that I thought Andrew spoke for very well. We're missing a kind of communitarian conservatism. Uh, indeed, conservatism arose as a critique of individualism, and I miss communitarian conservatism. We're missing compassionate conservatism. And I was very critical, as Mark knows, of uh, President Bush. But when you think about Rick Perry, President George W. Bush looks like Hubert Humphrey. Uh, and that, that at the heart, at least compassionate conservatism uh, acknowledged some role for government and the public sphere uh, to lift up the poor. And you see someone like Mike Gerson, my colleague and uh, President Bush's speechwriter, who feels very marginalized within the conservative movement uh, as it exists today. We're also missing a traditionalist conservatism that uh, Andrew spoke for, uh, Burke, Robert Nisbet, his hero Oakeshott. Uh, I think Bill Buckley would now be too left-wing for the current uh, conservative uh, movement. 
Um, and traditionalist conservatism is really about balance. And that's, I thought, what one heard at the heart of Andrew's talk. It was a talk about balance between the public sphere uh, and the private sphere, between government and business. Um, and so um, while I think of myself as uh, proudly, I use the word a lot more now that liberals don't use it much. I think of myself as a liberal or even a social democrat. But there is this kind of conservatism that I think is so valuable to humankind and has been valuable to our country uh, that's totally missing. Um, and I want to add a third vote for Ike, uh, the president who gave us the interstate highway system, which has environmental issues, but it was a heck of an investment project, uh, and also allowed millions and millions of people to go to college, uh, including me, through the uh, student loan program. Um, and that I agree with Tom that Ike uh, is underrated. And I wish we had conservatives... Uh, uh, of that sort uh, around right now. So I was grateful for Andrew's provocation because I think he actually went to the heart of a problem in our democracy. Thank you. And I'm sorry to add to the percentages wrong, Jill. <laughs> I think that it's, uh, I should tell you that on the way to the dinner last night, <clears throat> I asked Andrew, um, given his, his convictions and feelings about the Catholic Church, uh, whether he'd ever considered becoming uh, a an Episcopalian. And he looked at me and said, I am an Irish Catholic. I would rather be a Muslim than an Episcopalian. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, could I say one quick thing for the record? I, and the reason I like this kind of conservatism, Andrew mentioned last night that I wrote that column about his book, which I did. And the reason I changed my mind on gay marriage were the conservative arguments made by Andrew uh, my Jonathan Rausch and David Brooks. And the conservative argument for gay marriage is that if you believe in fidelity and commitment, you ought to want to encourage fidelity and commitment. And I think those are, and I actually wrote a long piece quoting myself and then criticizing myself um, <laughs> because, um, anyway, we, I won't go far than that. Um, but I, it was, I think that this is an interesting case where conservatism ended up being the ally of change, and it changed the minds of a lot of people, including me. Tom, how do you respond to this idea of the many different flavors of, of conservatism and, and the idea that they would span so much terrain in the American uh, historical tradition? You mean what, what EJ was saying? Yeah. But he's talking about things that don't exist that we you know that we should have but that we don't and it, he's totally right about that and I think we should we should try to talk a little more about uh, actually existing conservatism <laughs> you know the the stuff okay. that the, that's all around us you know rather than what we wish it were and what you know okay. can I say something sure of course EJ, yeah um, first of all I I'm happy that men speak up I just want women to speak up too <laughs> I, 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 I'm no blame for you for skewing the percentages I just want women to have a chance to speak. Um, just to offer up a historical advantage on some of these questions, because um, we're defending the Vatican over here. I think. <laughs> um, with regard to the remarks that Andrew made last night, and that some of which have been echoed here today, the conventional narrative about about Roe mm -hmm. um, that is that is largely accepted by left and right is that is that the court overstepped. Right? People quibble with that, or or argue, you know, but that that the, the the retreat of the left in the decades since Roe has been a consequence of of backlash that the court overstepped at that moment. That is simply not borne out by the historical evidence. What is borne out by the historical evidence? I just have been working on this road along. 
essay for The New Yorker last week about the, the long history of the debate over contraception, birth control, and abortion in this country. What is borne out by the evidence is that the reconfiguration and reinvention of the Republican Party that began in 1969 with Kevin Phillips and the emerging Republican majority was a very deliberate attempt, largely at the behest of Nixon's advisors, to ask Nixon to reverse his position on family planning and abortion. A series of memos from 1969, 1970, 71, 72, all describe uh, Buchanan and Halderman and other of Nixon's advisors convincing Nixon that he needs to abandon family planning, which he had signed Title X into law, that he needed to reverse his position on uh, the legalization of abortions on military bases, which he does, and that the way to do this, the way to destroy the Democratic Party gearing up for his campaign to re-election was to, to, to take Catholic, Catholic votes from Democrats, right. that, that there is a Catholic moral compulsion around this issue, that it was a growing and a gut issue with Catholics, and that the future of the Republican Party was to be found in taking a moral position on the, on the question of abortion that echoed the language of the Catholic Church. And so in 1971, Nixon publicly reversed his position on family planning and abortion, used the phrase the sanctity of life, which before then had never entered the congressional record or the federal register, has no, no purchase in American politics in any way whatsoever before that moment. It is not the court. The court is actually largely following public opinion. 68% of, Amer of Republicans in 1972 supported a woman's right to choose. 58% of Democrats did. Republicans supported abortion more than Democrats did well into the 1980s. It doesn't become a partisan issue in Congress until 1979 with the moral majority and the recruitment of evangelicals to the Republican Party. The Republican Party and modern conservatism, so far as it aligns itself with the Republican Party, is a consequence of that moment in 1970 when Nixon decided to find the party around a single issue that he thought could destroy the Democrats. We have been left with that legacy ever since. It defines what we have by way of a Democratic Party. Democratic, Democrats foolishly, stupidly allowed their party to be completely defined by this issue without engaging with it in a substantial way. And it is not the fault of Harry Blackman and the Supreme Court. Very interesting. Uh, Jill, let me ask you to go back to the mic for a moment and, and give us your your opinion about the viability of the Tea Party as a as a third party, as something that could be uh, an enduring element of uh, of American politics, or how do you see the Tea Party, um, you know, going in this next election year and beyond? I think the Tea Party involves a lot of people quite earnestly and sincerely distressed with the direction of the country and having a kind of formless frustration. Um, that is very easily manipulated by the media and has been, I think, quite shamelessly manipulated by the media. Um, I don't see the Tea Party as having kind of organizationally or structurally the strength of, say, you know, 1880s populism. Um, it lacks a kind of a, a leadership that could accomplish that. Um, it, it has more structure than, say, the Occupy movement, I think, in many ways. But I, I don't think that it will be the third party. I, I completely agree with Mark that, and, and also with Tad that this is, if there were a moment for, uh, we're, in, we have, we're in a period of such political disequilibrium that there could very well be a third party, but I don't think that the Tea Party will be it. Do you think, Mark, that the Tea Party is, uh, with the nomination of Romney, going to be, what will happen to the Tea Party if Romney's the nominee? I think that they're going to uh, find a way to express themselves in, in some manner. I, 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 they're not going to be happy with Romney. They're not going to be satisfied. They're not just going to 
roll up into a consensus for, for, uh, for one. Would they take Americans elect as their? It'd be awful hard to see how they would, but but I think that I think it's highly likely that they will that that they'll they'll consider a third party route. It'll be difficult for them to do it through Americans elect just because they'd have to be a unity ticket, and I don't think they'd ever accept that. Uh, and 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 that's part of the design of Americans elect is to make sure that doesn't happen. But. Um, but I, I, it's hard for me to imagine they're just going to sit by and watch this go by. I mean, I, I think that they'll try and field a candidate. I, I think they're more organized than 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 Jill uh, observed. I, I saw Mark Meckler up here recently when he was with Larry Lessig doing the Constitutional Convention, and I, you know, I was listening to what he was saying in terms of how the party, the Tea Party, has evolved. At least their organization, the Tea Party Patriots, which is the there are really three legs of the stool. Two of them are sort of consultant-driven, and but their organization is is really uh, uh, highly, I mean, a true grassroots organization, and and uh, you know they can flip a switch, and it's hundreds of thousands of people, uh, and, uh, and and I just can't imagine how they're going to support Romney, and so they're going to do something, and I, I'm not sure what it is, but. Uh, so then it gets that whole ballot access issue and money, and, and the, you know they'd have to have the funds to get on the ballot. But but you know after two years they they can move pretty quickly. Nia, do you have any sense of what the White House's uh, sort of thinking is about how this election will proceed uh, if Romney is the nominee and where the Tea Party will go from there? Yeah, um, I mean they're obviously uh, the White House focused on Romney, thinking that he will be. The nominee, Romney, just rolled out a campaign where he says that uh, Obama and the White House and Democrats are obsessed with him. And, of course, that's just another, an, another way of him saying that he is the inevitable nominee. He can't say that, so he says that the White House is obsessed with him. You know, they obviously think it's going to be a really tough election, that in the general, this whole idea of Romney being a moderate, which he actually is, uh, could actually help with independence. They are doing two things, one of which is trying to tie him to the Tea Party, uh, but also paint him as a flip-flopper, which in, in many ways are, are contradictory strategies. Um, but they're obviously uh, wanting to paint him as a Tea Party guy, as a radical. He has really treated, I think, the Tea Party with, uh, with you know, he doesn't touch the Tea Party. He had a, a rally a couple of months ago where he finally went to his first Tea Party rally. He did not say the words tea or party in that speech. Um, and so I think it's probably a, a smart strategy for him. I think ultimately, I mean, I think the Tea Party obviously wants to win. We've seen over this last couple of months them falling, falling in love first with uh, Donald Trump, uh, with with Herman Cain, with Rick Perry. Uh, they seem to not be able to make up their minds. But I do think the Tea Party is a much more uh, serious organization uh, than than people give it. And I think that's been one of Rick Perry's blunders, this whole idea of approaching running for what, running for the White House in a very unserious way. I think that oops moment, uh, more than anything, it, it sort of uh, gave the impression that he could just, by his own bluster and, and record in Texas, could, could win this group over. And they have very much decided uh, that uh, he doesn't have the intellectual timber to uh, be their candidate and be their uh, spokesperson. I think in terms of the general, Romney, if it is him, which it looks like it, it will be, 
uh, that you know, I think people are thinking that he would have to get a number two, a vice presidential nominee that is of the Tea Party's uh, liking, whether or not that's Mark Rubio or or, or, or someone else. Uh, and I think that's what that's what the White House is thinking. They're training all of their energy and their strategy on Mitt Romney. None of the you know, if you look at all of the press releases that the DNC sends out, none of them are about these other candidates. They're all focused on Romney. Do you think they take this Americans elect thing seriously? That's a good question. You know, I it hasn't it hasn't gotten much press yet, but I will say I just emailed my editor to say we should do something on it. Um, uh, I know there was a spread in Newsweek recently, and I think it's probably going to get a, a lot more attention. Uh, but I, I don't sense that yet that the Democrats or the White House are taking this seriously yet. But I, I think as as time goes on, uh, it, they probably will look at this a little more clearly. I you know having Tad Nijay here, I'm. Uh, there's no way I can't ask you what you see happening with the Tea Party and with the the impact of the nomination of uh, of, of Romney. Yeah, well, I think uh, you know I think Romney's going to be the nominee of the Republican Party because he's the only person who's put in place a mechanism to receive a nomination. You know, you you actually have to be able to go to these states, organize, win delegates. You know, and 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 he's the only one credible, I think, on that score. Now, when what. Uh, uh, is our side, the Democratic side, going to do? A lot of people say, well, uh, the Obama campaign is going to do what Bush did in 2004 to Kerry, you know, make him out to be a flip-flopper, go after him. Uh, I think they're actually going to do what Bush did in 1988 to Michael Dukakis, another campaign that I had the privilege to work for and observe up close. What the Bush people did in 88 against us, remember, when we left the Democratic Convention in Atlanta, Dukakis had a 17-point lead. You know, it was a very good (laughs) moment in time. Uh, and what they discovered through their research um, was that if they could accumulate negatives on Dukakis, a series of negative attacks, they could depress that support and convince people that he was unready to be president. And I think that's precisely what we're going to see from the Obama campaign. Uh, certainly that Romney has been a flip-flopper. How do you go from the left of Ted Kennedy? I worked for Senator Kennedy here in that election in 1994. And Romney decided when he ran, he was going to go to the left of Weld. That was the model. Weld beat Silver in the governor's race in 90 by essentially being the progressive. Uh, Romney did the same, went to the left of Kennedy on a broad series of issues, fundamental issues, abortion rights, gay rights, you know, real things that if you're going to change your position, you know, I would argue that it's a fundamental change. They're going to do that. But they're also going to do other things. They're going to do what we did in 94 here in Massachusetts and look to his record in business and the job destruction that went along with it. I spent a day in Marion, Indiana in 1994 interviewing striking workers at a plant. Let me tell you, their testimony against Romney was devastating. And that was something that people in Massachusetts got a chance to see firsthand. They're also going to, I think, say that Mitt Romney was a bad governor. That's why Massachusetts was 47th in job creation during his tenure. And I think what they will attempt to do in the course of the campaign is to accumulate those negatives on top of Romney. It's not just going to be the straight sort of hit, you know, that it was uh, in other campaigns. And when they get enough negative on top of him, enough doubt created about him, I think there'll be real openings for the president, particularly a president who has, frankly, a lot more states to go to in 2012 than we had to go to in either 2000 or 2004. E.J.? First of all, I'm reluctant to follow Tad, who's worked on every Democratic campaign since Al Smith, I think. If, uh, I don't know if you work for Brian, too. but uh, um, Every losing one. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> the, um, um, you know, uh, outside the consensus is always a better place, actually, for a pundit to be, because if you predict what everybody else is predicting, what good is that? And so I'll tell you on Romney what strikes me is that no matter how many gaffes some other candidate makes, 
the support isn't going to him. Right. You know, so Kane, Perry comes down, the support goes to Herman Kane. Herman Kane starts coming down, the support goes to New Gingrich. What that tells me is that there is a significant part of the Republican Party primary electorate, probably as high, I think, as 50%, if you add all this up, that just doesn't want to get to Mitt Romney. And so while on paper you say, well, who else is going to win the nomination and you end up with Romney, this just strikes me as a much more fluid a situation than that conventional wisdom suggests. I even think that there is an outside possibility of a kind of draft write-in for someone else, although the last time you really saw that, I think, uh, was in 1964 for Henry Cabot Lodge up in New Hampshire. And, you know, so it's a very hard thing to do. Nonetheless, I, I wrote that on a blog, and a very prominent conservative who never has sent me a note agreeing with anything sent me a note saying, yeah, that's right, and then went on to describe a writing campaign for Jeb Bush or someone else. So there is this sentiment in the Republican Party. Uh, but I agree with my colleague that, that the paradox is what hurts Romney in the primary may help him with the right. election, that flip-flop is dangerous, but it also allows moderate voters who are mad to say, we well, can't be that bad. He probably doesn't believe any of that stuff uh, he said in the primary, and that could actually uh, be helpful. Um, but I think that what, uh, what, if the economy got worse, I mean, Angela Merkel could tank Barack Obama's chances. I mean, if Europe got really bad and tanked our economy, it will get very hard for Obama. Nonetheless, I think things have gotten a lot better for him in about three months. He's finally making an argument, which he didn't make for about six months of this year, about the economy. He's pursuing a bit of a Harry Truman strategy against the Republican Congress, uh, or against Republicans in Congress. Uh, Congress is at 9% in the polls, in the, at least in the worst one I've seen. Um, and so I think that gives him a shot. And just real quick on the Tea Party and Americans elect, on the Tea Party, I don't view the Tea Party as an independent movement. I view it as the right end of the Republican Party. And a lot of the people, um, uh, it's uh, uh, Kate Zernicke of the uh, New York Times wrote a, uh, also wrote a good book on the Tea Party. And, and if you read Kate's stuff, what you see are people who had always been active on the right end of the Republican Party and were energized both by their anger at Bush and their anger at Obama's election. But they're still at heart Republicans. And the polls all show that they are overwhelmingly Republican. So I don't see them as a third party movement. And I think, lastly, Tom's point about fusion points to the difficulties with uh, American America elects, which is with fusion, uh, your uh, voting for your first choice doesn't guarantee the election of your last choice. But we don't have fusion. We don't have you know, um, uh, transferable votes where you can vote one, two, three. We've experimented actually this year in some cities with that. And so the problem with Americans elect is if you put up two moderate candidates and well, I don't agree with Andrew exactly that Obama's a conservative. I do think he's pretty middle of the road. Uh, I think the likelihood is that you split the center-left uh, vote, and a lot of people who would vote for the Americans elect candidate would end up electing their last choice. Um, and lastly, but I don't want to open a polemic on this, I do think Americans elect is like the privatization of the party system, that somebody has bought ballot access. Right. Uh, and that raises some Democratic small-D uh, democratic uh, uh, theory issues and practice issues that I think we'll, we'll debate as this uh, goes forward. You want to respond quickly, Mark? Uh, 
No, I look forward to that debate. I, I, it, like I said, this is a bold experiment, and it's brand new, and there's a lot of angles to it that that uh, need to be and will be considered. Uh, the, the Well, I, I mean, at the end of the day, half the people that I talk to argue that it's going to hurt Obama. Half the people argue that it will hurt Romney. I think they're convincing arguments on either side. There's also a mathematical exercise that I can send to you that Doug Schoen did that says it won't do either. Uh, uh, but my view is, uh, you know, that the only thing that's really going to spoil is the stranglehold that the two-party system has on this country that's led to things being as broken as they are, and I think that's a good thing. So I'm for anything disruptive, <laughs> and I think the notion that having more voice and more choice is a good thing, and it means it means more democracy, and if there's more democracy, I think that's going to lead to a good outcome. Although, just one quick point, and this I think Mark and I agree on, a lot depends. Uh, the reason I'm talking fast is I've got to catch a plane so I can do my day job, but um, it depends on who they nominate. Of I mean, course, that, that a certain kind of candidate could hurt Romney, another yep. kind of candidate, or whoever the Republicans nominate, a certain kind of candidate would, could hurt Obama, sure, right. and we don't know for sure right. who that will right. be. Right. Yeah. Tom, before we go to the uh, microphones, let me invite any of you who have questions. There's a microphone here and uh, one over here, and I think that, yeah, there's one over here, too. Uh, you would be most welcome to ask a question. Uh, how do you see the election season shaping up if, assuming Romney is the nominee? Or do you also share EJ's speculative idea that uh, that may not be what happens? Um. I'm planning on getting a job with President Bachman when. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, the, I, I just finished writing a book about the uh, the conservative resurgence. We're using con- conservative in the in the actually existing sense here. The conservative huh. resurgence since uh, since 2008, and it's an uh, it's an astonishing thing to me. And this is you know we've been we've been sort of tiptoeing around this issue, but we haven't really got to it uh, right right to it. That what what you saw in 2008 was this sort of catastrophic failure of a of the deregulated system of this great economic experiment that we have been engaged on for what since the 1970s in this country and you saw it you know fall flat on its face and almost bring the world economy down with it and by and large the most the the, the loudest uh, most vocal response to that has been this movement demanding more deregulation okay this is the this is the the, the it is so strange Okay, this is this is the paradox and the, the the peculiarity that we need to be that we need to be looking at. I say we need to be looking at it because I'm trying to. I, I just finished writing a whole book about this question. It is it is very puzzling, is it not, sir? <laughs> it is. All right. <laughs> so what's the answer? So so. The way I the way the way I looked at the at the at the conservative resurgence and the Tea Party movement is by you know trying to understand this in terms of what happened in the 1930s, the last time we had a very similar response, and then there was this sort. People very, you know, uh, uh, people turned against orthodoxy. Then we were talking about um, about uh, Galbraith and Keynes. Oh, I, it was in a private conversation. But we were talking about Galbraith and Keynes last night. But you go back and read uh, who who who's the guy that was the biographer of Galbraith? He was here last night. Richard Parker. Richard, Richard Parker. Parker. Go back and read his biography of, of Galbraith and the way the the world turned on the orthodoxy of the preceding century in you know, 1930, 31, 32 is, is a remarkable thing. They didn't embrace orthodoxy. They didn't say, yay, go gold standard. They were like, you know, to hell with this stuff. You know, and, they, and there was a revolt among uh, economics graduate students here at Harvard. I mean, there was, all over America, people were tossing out the old orthodoxy, not embracing it. That what we have done is very peculiar. Okay, so how do you, how do you explain it? One of the things that in, intrigues me the most about the Tea Party movement and about the conservatism generally just over the course of the last two years, uh, 
first of all, I should say, when they did this, they made this, this signal very early on in 2009 that this is the direction they were going to go. They weren't going to – remember, all the pundits are saying the Republican Party is finished. they got to moderate themselves. they got to move to the center, all that stuff. <laughs> they didn't do it. And they succeeded by not doing it, okay? They did exactly the opposite. They went off to this crazy extreme, and that yielded them this fantastic victory in 2010 by, by going the opposite direction. That's very strange. All of these things, very peculiar. What explains it? I think that one of the things that these guys do very well uh, is they, 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 they sound like a radical movement. They sound like, on the surface like a kind of left-wing movement out of the 1930s. And I've got this whole book filled with evidence of this. But the, 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 the classic example is Glenn Beck. And he was, uh, I mean, one of the big problems that they're having now is that he's not on TV anymore. Because he was, I mean, the, the, you go to enough Tea Party rallies and they're all, just, they're all just mouthing things that they saw on his TV show the day before or two days before or something like that. It was a giant projection of Glenn Beck. And without him, you know, without the leader, I don't know what they're going to do. But he is uh, one of the things that, that he's a, a really intriguing guy in all sorts of ways. But one of the ways that he's that one of the things about him that's that's very intriguing to me is the way that he mimics left wing uh, speech. Uh, and 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 I mean, I'll give you one example. You you know who Adbusters is? They're responsible in some ways for Occupy Wall Street. Uh, for years, when I used to do Baffler magazine, I read Adbusters, and I you know, would correspond with those guys. And one of the, their sort of trademark things was they had an American flag where they had replaced the stars with corporate logos. Okay, I forget what name they called it. They called it like the corporation flag. or so. I, I forget what. But it was their cynical way of saying, yeah, America is just the land of corporations and all that sort of thing. So on Glenn Beck's program sometime in 2009, here he is. He's got an American flag, and he, uh, and he very, you know, with this great sweep of his hand, wipes all the stars off of it and starts replacing them with corporate logos, you know, making exactly the same point, but with the politics, you know, 180 degrees different. Fascinating guy. Anyhow, I could go on about this for hours and hours and hours, but the, what I want to – the, the, the critical point is this. The reason they were able to do this and they succeeded with this is because of the complete absence of an actual – left-wing movement that, that, that would be using this language, right? Like you saw in the 1930s. That didn't happen this time around. Well, it finally did. Uh, the Occupy Wall Street people. And that has really problematized the uh, Tea Party movement's critique by giving them some competition. They, the, what's, what, one of the things that made them so powerful and, and effective, I mean, even to someone like me, even to a cynical leftist like me, you know, I go to their rallies, and there's there's something very uh, you know moving about it. Uh, one of the things that, that that made that possible was that they didn't have any competition. They were the only game in town. They were the only. Well, they had the park all to themselves. You know, with their tri corner hats mm. and their megaphones. But now they don't anymore, and that's going that's going to uh, I think that's going to uh, be very difficult for them. Can I just respond sure. to that? Um, one of the, the I'm dying to read the book. I can't wait to hear the end. Oh, you know, oh the title. The title. It's, called, it's not outside the consensus? <laughs> no, no. It's called Pity the Billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> um, so looking forward to the fuller explanation, but I do think there is a difference between the Tea Party and the Occupy movement in this regard, and it has to do with the, your bewilderment at this um, failure to reject orthodoxy at this, at this moment in 2008, 2009, and that is to say the rejection of orthodoxy requires a historical argument. It requires a sense of history. Glenn Beck's whole shtick was, and he said this again and again and again, I am America's history professor. <laughs> Every time he got on television, and still when he is on the radio, he is giving a history lesson. 
He is supplying his constituency with a historical argument that justifies a, a course of policy. All, all politics involves a historical argument. All politics is an argument about the relationship between the present and the future, right? That's a, a historical argument. It requires a sense of the past. Historians are different. Historians talk about the relationship between the past and the present. Beck just kind of messes this all together and just does his own thing, messes, uses history that is essentially just only a political argument. But Occupy does not have an official historian in that way. In, in other words, in, in, in the 30s, there were. There was actually a whole generation of scholars who were interested in thinking about history and thinking about how we got into this mess and making a historical argument about why, this, why the gold standard, you know, offering a critique of the gold standard that was based in evidence and based in argument and that wasn't blather and bluster in politics. So there was a separate kind of discourse that was going on. The Tea Party still does have that from Beck. I mean, and there, there's, a, there's, there's a giant, and many people have written about this, a fairly sizable industry of the fake textbooks, <laughs> you know, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? There's the fake textbooks, and there's the fake historian. And if, if you feel that, 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 that we are at a moment of uh, unprecedented historical crisis and there's only one direction to go, that, that is because you have a sense of history to guide you. The occupied people don't actually have a sense of history, and they have no one talking to them about the past. And they don't have a TV network either. So. Right. <laughs> uh, let me open it up to your questions. John. Uh, this is for any member or two of the panel that wants it, but let's assume you've been given two minutes with President Obama and that you're very anxious to get him reelected. Uh, what uh, things would you suggest for him to do uh, in the remaining uh, 12 months. Let's assume that Europe doesn't collapse uh, and that the economy is no worse than it is now. But you're the guy. We haven't got any Bill Daly and we haven't got uh, Axelrod. Um, and you're to tell him what to do. What do you tell him to do? If you don't want him to win, please don't answer. Let's say, uh, Tad and uh, Mark, I'm going to ask you to pretend you want him to win. I don't know whether you do or not. Well, I would tell the president, uh, talk about jobs. Okay, because, uh, you know, because even if you're not delivering jobs, even if the economic performance of the country is in decline, if people believe that you actually are in there with them and care and, and, and are concerned about the things that are top of mind with them, that are affecting their lives so centrally, and that you are fighting for them on that issue that matters to them the most, you have a much better chance of winning support for them. So I, as a Democrat, am very pleased that for about six weeks now, EJ alluded to this, the president has seemed to maintain a pretty singular focus on talking about jobs. I don't, I don't think it's a lot more complicated than that, to tell you the truth. And, and these winning campaigns tend to be simple. You know? And if you could simplify it and sort of stay in that space, that's the zone the voters are in. I'd get in that zone with them, and I would stay there and try to occupy that as much as possible. Mark? The, when voters vote for a president, they vote on a constellation of attributes, not on single issues. And uh, the, by far the most important attribute the voters look at is perception of strength. And uh, it was really interesting when we were running against you guys in 2000, even when we were a little bit underwater, in September, with that 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 attribute was still strong, and that gave us confidence that it was that it was going to uh, we'd prevail in the end. But that's the thing we watch the most. And so, uh, if I'm working for the president, I'm thinking, how do we strengthen that particular asset 
that I believe have suffered for you know for a, a whole variety of reasons that we could talk about. Uh, uh, some uncontrollable, others more in their control. But the one that was in their control that I I I, I do fault the president for is the failure to uh, adopt the the recommendations of his own commissions. Two of them that put forward very muscular, comprehensive ideas and to have put those commissions together, set them up, and then to walk away from them, I thought was a, a huge mistake from a policy perspective, but I think from a political one as well. The And I think that uh, uh, I, everything that we know about the super committee is that it's going to be another train wreck. And uh, I think once again, people will say, geez, you know, the this is supposed to be the president's job, and he gave it to a commission, and the commission has kicked it over to a super committee, and now the super committee hasn't done anything. And so there's just going to be this uh, you know, additional baggage of, 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 of perceptions among the public that the government and the administration is incapable of doing anything. So my advice would be to you know, step in in whatever capacity to say, you know, listen, you know, uh, we are going to – I, I, we're going to make the bold decision. We're going to tackle entitlements. We're going to raise taxes. We're going to you know, we're going to we're going to take a you know half a loaf from each side, and that's the way we've got to go. And everybody's got to do it, and understand that there are potential political consequences. But in the end, I think those consequences are small bore relative to the greater perception that the president will have stepped in, done the right thing, made the hard choice, which is what leadership's really about. I mean. When you look at successful leaders of our time, usually they're not successful in the moment. In other words, they've done the politically unpopular thing that over time makes them more popular. Ted, how do you respond to that? I agree. I think, you know, the president has to look for and try to seize every opportunity to demonstrate strong leadership. Well, what about this uh, super committee issue? Well, I, you know, I, I, listen, I, I think uh, the Congress is broken. There's a reason that their job approval is 9%. It doesn't work anymore. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not in the room with these guys, but it doesn't, from a distance, it doesn't look like they're going to resolve anything at all. George. I'm very glad that uh, people started mentioning a little bit about Occupy, because I was beginning to think that this was taking place in 2010. Um, I think there's a fundamental conservatism about the Occupy movement. I think uh, that, as some people have said, the rule of law is now a radical position, but it's also a conservative position. Washington, D.C. Occupy came out yesterday with an economic plan, a broad-based economic plan, which I've not read, but I've heard Andrew Mandrick on Occupy TV, which is current TV, Keith Olbermann's show, talk about it and say that it is also fundamentally conservative. So I would like you to talk about, if you can, the conservatism of the Occupy movement. Let me ask you, Jill, to, uh, to, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I haven't seen this economic plan, so I would be at a disadvantage. In, in, well, fortunately, none of us have either, so you can – you're not you're, – I mean, just as a, a – Can I give you an example? I, I, I haven't seen it either, but I know one of their big demands, the Chicago Occupy people, their demand number one, as a matter of fact, is to bring back the Glass-Steagall Act. <laughs> and, okay – Maybe that doesn't sound conservative to you because it, you know, it, it, did, it, it, it was a radical change when it was done in 1933. But think about the banking industry that that gave us, right? It was profoundly boring. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was very, very safe. 
it was dressed in you know black pinstripe suits or whatever. It was in some ways that is a a supremely conservative thing. They don't want you know frenzied finance. They don't want you know Wall Street slicing and dicing and blah 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 blah. You know all the crazy things that Wall Street's done for the last twenty years. Hey, can I talk about what I would tell Obama to do? Sure. Absolutely. First of all, you know, the strong leadership, that's fine. The thing is, you know, look at the historical position we're in. He has got to come out and say it bluntly. The old order is discredited. The things that we've been doing for 30 years got us into this mess. And I know that's a big change for him, that he, so far he has not wanted to do that. He's not wanted to break with the past. He's got, but I think he has to take a, a leaf from the Roosevelt administration, the uh, unemployment problem. God damn it, start up a new WPA. You know, all this talk about job creation has to come from the private sector. No, it doesn't. It's really easy. It's an easy problem to solve. The, and the government, and then the, you know, the other thing that we've been talking about, the debt crisis, it's, it's largely, uh, you know, I know in Washington, D.C., everybody thinks it's a terrible thing, but have you looked at what, at what the, you know, the, 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 the interest rate on, on government bonds these days? It would be an easy thing to do something like the WPA, to spend, spend, spend. You pay it back. When the economy, you know, you, you fix the, the, the problem of the deficit when the economy is doing well. Certainly not when it's in the situation that it is. But propose it. The Republicans will shoot it down, of course. But everybody has fond memories of the WPA. Even Ronald Reagan liked the WPA, you know. <laughs> talk about that. And then lastly, talk about the power of monopoly. You, you, I keep, when, when I look at the Tea Party movement, when I look at the, at the rank and file of the conservative movement, the people who are angriest, it's always small business. There's a, now small business people. Uh, EJ is not here anymore, but those you know who who know about the Bryan campaign. Small business was a huge part of populism and a huge part of of the New Deal, for that matter. Why did they sign on for these crazy radical leftists back in the day? It's because the, those crazy radical leftists were the ones that wanted to that proposed antitrust and wanted to enforce antitrust. Okay, and there's you know it would be an e- well, I don't know if it would be an easy thing, but you should he should at least be trying to win these people back. You know, he's got to give them something. He's got to at least problematize the worldview. They can't just automatically be Republicans. So that's what he should do. If he does any one of those three things, I'll be absolutely astonished. Alex, could I just jump in on the uh, uh, Occupy question and conservatism? Sure, uh, of course. I refer you all to uh, Buddy Romer, who is running for president, has been completely shut out of the debates, a very talented uh, a guy who's a former governor, former four-term congressman, very successful in the private sector, and it's completely embraced the Occupy uh, uh, movement and, with a very conservative approach and conservative message. So uh, check out Buddy Romer. Does he sound like a prospective uh, America elects? Uh, I think he'd be a very good candidate. For <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to respond to the whole idea of what I would, uh, if I were partisan, what I would tell Obama. I, I think... Um, one of the things that we don't, I live in Washington, and the consensus in Washington now is that Barack Obama will lose to Mitt Romney. Uh, and I think that we miss the fact that there are millions and millions and millions of Americans who absolutely love Barack Obama still and don't have questions about his record and, and defend him uh, and, and think that it has been a Republican Party full of obstructionists that have uh, derailed his plans. And I think my advice to, to Obama, if I were a partisan, uh, would be to get out into the country and get in front of those crowds uh, of people who love him. And I think that's one of the things in 2008 that was so, so powerful about his campaign was that he was in front of these, I mean, 10, 20, 30,000 people would come out and 
and see him. And I think that's something uh, that would give the sense that he is a leader. And I think the comparison between him and Romney or whoever the other uh, nominee uh, is would be a pretty, pretty powerful in uh, be to his benefit. Well, Jill, you're the only one who hasn't given Barack Obama any advice this morning. Go ahead. I think he needs to talk about history. I actually think he could do that incredibly well and, and with great effect. I mean, soaring political rhetoric is his great skill. And um, I think asking us to think about our common humanity as a matter of historical argument. And he, can, he, he could find a way to talk about um, all elements of discontent, you know, whatever part of the political spectrum they are expressed in as giving us an important historical moment and opportunity. And I think I and I very much agree with Thomas Frank about this, that that has to involve this is a transformative turning point moment. Um, but he needs to justify that argument by thinking in a grand scale and offering us a grander historical narrative to counter what I think is essentially a historical narrative offered by others. I want to read you this note that I was just handed Andrew will be here soon. He overslept. <laughs> um, I actually he, did, to... he did have to stay up and write a column last night. And I have to go meet with students, so uh, he can replace me here. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jill. Uh, yes, leave your notes for him, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, leave that, please. No, that's <laughs> You don't want it? Americans elect is a very interesting concept, Jill, Jill, but transparency is going to be very important to that cause, I feel. Why the great secrecy as to who's been backing this, Mark? They are. Uh, they had to uh, appeal through the court system in order to. They got shut down by the FCC in order to uh, to raise any money to fund this project. They they are p- complying with the laws of the IRS that uh, that the Boy Scouts and any other organization does. They. Uh, in order to get this funded, once the candidates are elected, all the candidate funding will be done exactly as the transparency laws currently subscribe. Well, I don't think that really quite answers. Why, why are they reluctant to, to be identified now? Well, the, uh, it, it takes a, a ton of money to do this, and the, there's no agenda, there's no candidate that anybody's supporting, and the only way to do this is to raise it in large blocks of money. They're gonna, they have a, 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 a way in which they're going to repay the money so it's all small-dollar donations. But the people who are doing it are people who are uh, interested in changing the process who have been either part of – who have been active in politics before and are getting a ton of pressure from rep- the, the, the powers that are in power. And if they, are, if, if they choose to disclose who they are – then they get heat from the Republicans or the Democratic Party to pull down. But the, but the important point to me is that, uh, that they're complying with all the laws. They, if they choose to disclose who they are, that's fine. But in the end, the people who, who the, 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 when the ticket's nominated, whoever funds the ticket has to do so under the, under the FEC laws. Well, yes, speaking as a journalist, I would be afraid that the issue will become who they are rather than the process and the nomination. Uh, it's an understandable question. It's a legitimate one. It's, it's simply, the, you know, uh, and it gets asked, and, uh, uh, the, and, and, but at the end of the day, 
when the candidates are elected, whoever contributes to those candidates will have to be fully disclosed. And this, this, it's, it's not perfect, and I admit that, but it's the only way this thing's going to get done. Okay, fair enough. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm sorry Jill left because I think she began to answer the question I have. Um, there's a wonderful piece in Foreign Affairs by George Packer this month called The Broken Social Contract. And uh, I, my question to Jill would have been, if she'd read the piece, uh, which I hope she had, and maybe others have, uh, to what extent and how can uh, Obama uh, respond to the issues which really articulate uh, far better than uh, Occupy Wall Street does what's wrong with uh, the country and the system and our broken social contract at this point in time. Have any of you here read that the article? Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I read it, but I, I can't repeat the process. Well, I'll, I'll just summarize this much, okay. uh, Alex. He, he starts in 1978 or late 60s and 70s and talks about America as it was then, a post-depression, post-war America in which uh, there was a social compact in effect uh, among politicians, business, the clergy, academics, uh, and so forth, that uh, the chief executives earned 40 times what uh, the salary workers uh, did. Uh, and you may remember there was uh, Johnson appointed uh, Fred Kappel, who was the head of American Telephone, to try to kind of recalibrate uh, public servants' salaries uh, with the private sector. Uh, and judges, I clerked for a federal court of appeals judge uh, who'd been a state judge before. He went from 7,000 to 40,000 uh, a year in one fell swoop. Uh, so, but there was this, there was this understanding uh, of a kind of a balance uh, in America, and uh, it worked, and it's now gotten completely out of balance. The uh, chief executives earn 400 to 4,000 times what salary workers do and so forth. Uh, and so this is all embedded in what Occupy Wall Street is complaining about but not articulating particularly well. So I commend George Packer's article to those of you who haven't read it because I think it will well, get you thinking about a lot of what we're talking about right here. Tom has uh, some knowledge. Well, this is the, what you're describing is what I've been writing about for, for, for a long time. Uh, and the, the first step in, I mean, and it's, it's, a, it's a great argument, and it also goes back to the kind of conservatism, you know, in quote marks, that we all, that we all share. That's, you're talking about the world that I grew up in. What destroyed that world? You know, how was that, how did that world end and become? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it wasn't you know it wasn't Hollywood that did it, right? And it wasn't uh, you know the teachers' union that destroyed it, right? It was uh, it was the, the the sort of the deregulated market, uh, the you know the the allowing uh, you know all the changes that we've that we've had since the since the late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties. The first step in coming to grips with that is to acknowledge it. Uh, if, if Barack Obama even talked about it, it would be uh, extraordinary to me. I mean, this is something that I've been writing about for, for years. Uh, I mean, one of the things that, you, that I mean, it, just to, I don't know if Packer mentions this or not, the, probably the biggest sort of structural change that's allowed all that is the complete destruction of the labor movement. You know, after World War II, they were, they were, there was always, they had a seat at the table in any big decision you... 
Yeah, but you go back and look at any any uh, you know government commission, any blue ribbon commission from the the fifties or sixties or seventies. There's always you know there, here's some people from Wall Street, here's some people from organized labor. You know that's always how they did it. Today they never have a seat at the table anymore. Maybe they'll they'll like one guy like their lobbyist will get to be there or something like that. But did you sleep well? Uh, <laughs> I, I am completely mortified. I I am so so sorry. Um, I uh, I had to write a column last night, and I was up till two, and I set my alarm, and I it was still ringing when I woke up. Uh, I, I'm also uh, a little jet lag from the West Coast, so I, I'm really I've never done this before, and I am incredibly. Well, I think you should suffer for it for the rest of your life. Uh, uh, right? <laughs> Say what? It was appalling. I'm sorry you weren't here to defend yourself. I'm sorry yourself. to defend myself. I, 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 I truly, truly, truly. I well, I do have a piece of interesting news for you, by the way. Yes. Um, those of you who were at the dinner last night know that um, Andrew was challenged very pointedly by a reporter from the New York Times about his assertion that the New York Times and other major news organizations had stopped using the word torture to refer to waterboarding and other things after the United States became involved in it. And Tom Patterson gave me this shortly before we began. It is a Shorenstein Center analysis from April 2010 called Torture at Times, Waterboarding in the Media. And I would like to read you one sentence. The New York Times called waterboarding torture, or implied it was torture, in just two of 143 articles, 1.4%. In other words, I don't know whether the woman last night was one of those two, but I think Andrew's point was well taken. Well, thank you. Um, I will follow up with Carlotta because I felt very bad. Sorry? Yes. Really? Well, then that might that might be the case, and I'm going to check that off. Um, you might want to, Tom. Can I let uh, Andrew have this? This is a student paper, uh, but uh, thank you. I did I did another I did my own exhaustive analysis of this at one point and came up with zip. But uh, but if that particular one, which was a very early one, slipped through, through the cracks, I told her that I would resolve it and I would publish it. Uh, I'll I'll post it today. If that. that Okay, Tom. But there's a, you know, we talked a little bit about the historical, Can I have a look at it for historical a perspective. And the historical perspective is that the New York Times routinely used the term torture. Uh, they did so during the Vietnam War. They did so during the Korean War. They did so during the Philippine Uprising. Uh, they stopped using it almost completely. And I say almost, not completely, but almost completely when the U.S. became involved. Mm -hmm. The U.S. and Israel, actually, were the two exceptions. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, we've gone past our time, but I'm not going to let you uh, uh, leave without answering one core question that uh, all the column, all the panelists have addressed. If you had two minutes with Obama and you were giving him advice on how to win in 2012, what would you tell him? Tax reform. I think the one thing missing from his uh current platform is a radical tax reform that gets rid of uh, the deductions um, and simplifies the rates 
to so that so that and the argument here is that it's not just the free market argument that a that a simple tax structure is more transparent and therefore more accountable. I think what people feel when they look at the tax code is they have no idea what's going on in it. And the lobbying industry is entirely dependent upon this tax code. I mean, a vast amount of its business is to do with that tax code. If you gutted it, and this is, I think, why Herman Cain got an absurd, however absurd, he got an appeal because his idea resonates with people. Uh, This tax code is an invitation like all truly, really complex things uh, to prevent the public from finding out what's really happening in their own government. If you removed all the deductions, and I would go so far as to remove the mortgage too because I think that's a distortive uh, uh, anti-market device, then I think uh, you could, uh, first of all, he needs needs more than just re-elect me, more of the same. He needs more than... The alternative is too scary to contemplate, and uh, he needs more than trust me. If, if it weren't for me, we would be really, really would be bad. <laughs> um, I think he needs a positive proposal, um, but I don't believe he should abandon his essential character as a conciliator. I think he should argue that the grand bargain on taxes and revenues is his goal. It has long been his goal. He wants to do it. He will cooperate with anybody. He will cooperate with him. And that you should vote for him for that and vote for Democrats for that. In, in, in that. So that's, I think, what he should do. And I think also he should make much more of his foreign policy and the dangers of the alternative. I think that you know, he, he, he made a very uh, ballsy decision to in- increase the war and intensify the war in Afghanistan something I opposed at the time. But the success of that surge in terms of its ability, not in terms of its ability to rescue Afghanistan as a viable nation, which is an impossible and, and quixotic task, but, um, but to actually kill about three to 400 mid-level al-Qaeda operatives, more actual of the mid-level connectors between Keta and what's going on in Afghanistan, really spectacular. The drone program, Whatever its, uh, whatever its uh, uh, moral issues, and the fa- it, it did, over time, minimize civilian casualties to a really remarkable degree um, while wiping out almost all of al-Qaeda, and then to go in and capture, not just kill, but get bin Laden and get all the intelligence that was available in that house against the advice of Biden, of Clinton, um, who both opposed the raid. Um, the, pers- the president who personally made sure there was an extra helicopter, which turned out to be exactly the right thing. Look, the Republicans did their best, amazingly and gracelessly, with that gracelessness that they're now identified with, to say, ah, he just said yes, and he was golfing and <laughs> SEAL, SEAL Team 6. No, his first act in office was to say, get bin Laden to the CIA. He pursued the strategy, and he got it. If he were a Republican, he'd be on Mount Rushmore. I mean, he really would. That we would still be having celebrations of this great event. I mean, he would have, it, he would have descended from an airplane in like you know super parachute, and uh, <laughs> he really could have said mission accomplished. 
And they did it when they had nothing, really. He, he's, because, and here I think because he thinks it's good governments, he doesn't want to inflame. He, he, he wants to win by diffusing and defeating quietly. Um, so I think he really should. Look, and you look at the ratings, actually. He's polling on foreign policy a 60-40 approval. People like what he's done. He ended the Iraq War. Um, uh, so I think tax reform, I know it makes me, I want him to be <laughs> a kind of Republican. Um, but I do, think, I do think tax reform is a good government thing. I don't think it's just a Republican thing. Uh, it, it, it really upsets me that Democrats have such sort of issues with it. Um, and I think foreign policy. And then tell us your record. Uh, you know, Obama, I've watched him very closely for a long time. In, in fights in the ring, he, he's on the ropes a lot of the time, and he's happy to be. He, he, he hangs back. He's a boxer who does not jab. He waits. And then when he jabs, when he closes, it's pretty nasty. He can really punch him in the face. Um, I think Mitt Romney in this environment as a candidate is extremely vulnerable in, an environment, in a populist environment, you elect someone whose net worth is $264 million, who earns $26 million a year, whose job was to fire people, um, and whose religion, tragically and wrongly, will suppress uh, the voting base. And who has gone through this really humiliating, I mean, isn't it humiliating what's, what's being done to him by the Republican Party? I mean, here you, have you ever had a candidate run before, perfectly competent, former governor, front runner, and they just can't, they, they can't coalesce around him. I mean, he's been there for months now with no surge of general party support. You would think most, the Republican Party normally figures out, oh, well, we got this guy, let's all, you know, and they don't want him. They obviously don't want him, but they've got nobody else. So under those circumstances, um, my own view is that Obama is almost certainly going to win this, real, this election. And my own view has also be from the, been from the start, and again, I, is that he's always been an eight-term president, that he's eight, eight-year president. He's always regarded his strategy as that long-term thing. So looking at it right now, especially given this opposition, misses where he's looking. He's always looking about four years down the line. But he may lose because of the economy. I mean, it, it would be quite remarkable for a president to win re-election by any serious margin in, under these circumstances. But um, I think he can, and I think he almost certainly will. You didn't hear me say <coughs> at the beginning of this that uh, you and Thomas gave us last night one of the most fascinating uh, evenings that the Theodore White uh, event has ever offered up and I want to thank you both for that. It has really been quite an extraordinary couple of days and uh, very provocative and lots of things to uh, ponder. Andrew, I'm sorry you overslept, oh. but I'm awfully glad that you were here. <laughs> and uh, really Tom, happy. the same. Thank you both. Thank you all. Thank the panelists. I thank you very much. And uh,